May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes in the church, you may hear people talk about thin spaces or thin places. And this idea is that there are holy and sacred places where the separation between us and God is somehow thinner. Now sometimes these places are sort of fleeting experiences that are dependent on the people in the moment. But other times, these are places that folks are drawn to over and over again. And in those places, we may try to capture this thin space. We build a church on top of it. We put in beautiful windows and altars to try to hold on to the closeness that we experience to God. And sometimes, once we have marked these holy places, some of us will take it upon ourselves to make a pilgrimage to the place to have this experience. And a pilgrimage is different than just taking a trip or a vacation. It's not about seeing the sights, but it's about seeking out and finding holy places and to walk in the footsteps of all of the pilgrims that went before you. And in the case of the Holy Land, it's to actually walk in the footsteps of Jesus. In 2015, I was fortunate enough to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and we traveled first to a city called Tiberias, which is up on the Sea of Galilee, and from there, we went to all the places in the Galilee that Jesus walked and taught. And then, after a few days, we turned and went down to Jerusalem. And once we got there, you pretty quickly discover that just about every street or corner or doorway in the old city of Jerusalem is dedicated to a saint or is connected to some story from the gospel or from the Bible and is something holy and historic. The old city is divided into quarters. You have a Christian quarter and you have a Muslim quarter and a Jewish quarter and I think an Armenian quarter. And within each quarter, as you walk through one to the next, the smells of spices and tea and coffee which vary depending on where you are, mix with sounds of shops and pilgrims and people praying. And depending on the time of the day, you may hear the adhan, which is the Muslim call to prayer, which comes from the mosque. Now in Jerusalem, you have almost too many options to pick your thin place to experience. You can follow the stations of the cross. You can stand in the upper room. You can go to the pool where Jesus healed the sick. You can go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre that houses not just the empty tomb, but also where we traditionally have said the site of the crucifixion. You can go to the Wailing Wall and reach out and touch the stones of Herod's temple and hear the prayers of the faithful. 
so many places to walk in the footsteps of our Lord and so many places to see and to touch. It really is a sensory and religious overload. But the real heart of Jerusalem, the place that hovers above the skyline and that draws your eyes to it over and over again, is the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is this large, built-up, elevated plaza or platform, and it's where Herod's temple stood until it was destroyed in 70 A.D. It's currently under Muslim authority. So there's only one way up for non-Muslims to get to the Temple Mount. You have to pass through a security gate with a metal detector and where they check not just for weapons but also for prayer books and religious symbols. Then you go up a wooden walkway, which gives you a beautiful view of the Wailing Wall, and then you walk through this narrow passage before you step out onto an open plaza, and all that noise and closeness of the old city disappears, and instead there is quietness, and you know that you are in a holy place. And again, the place that you cannot take your eyes off of is the Dome of the Rock with its gold gilded dome and its bright blue mosaic tiles. To tell the story of the Dome of the Rock tells a complicated story of Jerusalem. The current dome, the shrine, is under Muslim control. Before that, it was a crusader Christian church and then before that, it was another Muslim shrine that had been built on the ruins of a Roman temple to Jupiter, which had been built on the ruins of Herod's temple, which had been built on the ruins of Solomon's temple. But at the heart of all of this back and forth, the reason for it all, what the shrine is built around is what is called the foundation stone, what our Jewish brothers and sisters call the navel of the world. For them and for us, this is a place where heaven and earth meet, a thin place indeed, and it is here that it is believed that Abraham brought Isaac and called the place the Lord will provide. The story that we have this morning is just as complicated, if not more so, than the history of the Shrine of the Dome of the Rock. Many buildings have marked that place as holy, and in our story this morning, we hear a terrifying command of God to Abraham to take Isaac, the one that they named He Who Laughs, his joy, his promise, and to sacrifice him. Abraham has already sent one son away on God's promise that it would be okay for Ishmael and Hagar to go into the desert. But now God asked for the son that was promised and that would make Abraham the father of nations. But Abraham 
does as God commands. He gets up early in the morning. He packs things up. He sets out with Isaac and some young men. They travel for three days, and when they get to where they can see the mountain that God has sent them to, he leaves the young men behind, and he gives the wood to Isaac to carry. We maybe hear the confusion and uncertainty in Isaac's voice when he asked his father, where is the lamb? And Abraham gives the only answer that he can, which is God will provide. And so they continue on. And the horror for us continues because there on the mountain, Abraham builds an altar and stacks the wood and binds Isaac and raises the knife. And artists have captured this scene like a freeze frame with the knife in the air and Isaac on the altar. And it's in that frozen moment that we feel fear and confusion and shock and maybe disappointment. Why has Abraham come to this moment without question or argument? Abraham, who looked at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and negotiated with God, if there is one righteous person here, will you save these cities? But here we come to this altar and this place without a single word of protest. How can a father be so willing to offer his son? And how are we to understand Abraham as a symbol of our faith? And then in that frozen moment, we come to the more troublesome question, which is how are we to understand a God that tests Abraham by calling for the sacrifice of his child? You would not be surprised, I think, if I told you that there's been a lot of words written about this story. Is at the center of the three great Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. We hold this story in common, just as we hold the Temple Mount in common. And there have been a lot of very well-studied people that have given us explanations, one of which is that this story is written to show that the God of Israel rejects child sacrifice, right? This is a time where people lived in a world of many gods and that people would make offerings and sacrifices to the God of their choosing to gain that God's favor. And these sacrifices would include children. And so the well-studied explanation is that God was not so much testing Abraham's faith, but is showing that child sacrifice is no longer acceptable. There's truth to that explanation. And it perhaps helps to calm our uneasiness about this story, and it certainly makes God safe again. But I don't think that that's what we should take from this story. It's not enough to reshape God into something that we find to be easier or more tasteful. We should stand in awe of God that has power over life and death. Awe 
A-W-E. It's a complicated word. Now, we hear it more often maybe out of mouths of our young folks, or they, at least they used to, when they would say something is awesome, right? Something is good or really cool. But what the word means is on the one hand, it has a positive meaning to it of being in wonder of something. You stand in awe of a sunset. But then buried in there is that you have fear. And perhaps that is what this story is here to remind us of, that we truly stand in awe of God. It is this awe that has led us throughout the ages to build temples and churches and shrines over this rock where all of this took place. And to stand on the Temple Mount and to look at the dome, I certainly felt a sense of awe that in this place there was both holiness and peacefulness, but always the possibility of violence. The awe inspired by God has been wrongly used to wage war against each other, and we abuse it by killing in the name of God. The awe that we feel in this scene of Abraham poised to strike Isaac with the knife is the same awe that leads us to declare, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. Isaac was given by God and belonged to God. The nation that would come from Abraham did not belong to Abraham, but belonged to God. This God, not explained away by academic studies, is the God that inspires both wonder and fear. It is this God that called Abraham to bring Isaac to the foundation stone for sacrifice, but it is this same God that stops the knife and provides the ram. It is this awesome God that led the prophets to come again and again to call Israel to repentance. It is the same awesome God that called the disciples to follow, to follow Jesus as he traveled around casting out demons, healing the sick, offering hospitality to all the wrong people, and to raise the dead. When we look at the cross in awe and wonder and fear, it does not come because we have made God some academically acceptable and safe Christ that was willing to silently die. The power of the cross comes from the fact that the awesome God of Abraham that had the power of life and death became one of us in Jesus Christ and lived and loved as one of us. And that it is this awesome God that carried his own cross up the hill of Golgotha. And it is this awesome God that was lifted up in pain and agony. And it was this awesome God who could have called down angels to stop it all that stayed silent. We can't 
make the hard stories easier or taste better in our mouths because the hard stories are there to remind us that the power of the cross was the complete emptying of God for our salvation. And that is the only kind of God that could go and could defeat death through his resurrection and to break open the gates of hell. Abraham called the place that they went, God will provide. And we stand in awe of the powerful God that saves us all. Amen.